Welcome, everyone. This is ACO Watch, a midweek review. I always love that intro by um, Chris Martin of Coldplay, that I used to rule the world and now I walk the streets I used to roam, sweep the streets I used to roam. It's, a, it's kind of a, a, a metaphor for medicine and physicians in this crazy landscape of health healthcare that we have going on, this major shift. So, Welcome to ACO Watch. I'm your host, Greg Masters. I publish the blog, acowatch.com, and we're broadcasting today from San Diego, California on July the 20th, 2011. I am uh, very delighted to welcome back for an encore appearance, fellow health tweet, consultant, and publisher of the awesome blog, eCare Management, Vince Caritis, also known on Twitter as at Vince Caritis. That's V-I-N-C-E. K-U-R-A-I-T-I-S. Vince is a principal and founder of Better Health Technologies and consults to companies in developing strategy, partnerships, and business models for chronic disease management and e-health applications delivered in homes, workplaces, and communities. Vince brings 25 years of healthcare experience in multiple roles, including President, VP for Corporate Development, VP for Operations, management consultant, and marketing executive. His consulting and work projects span 100 different healthcare organizations, including hospitals, physician groups, medical device manufacturers, pharma, and health plans. Vince speaks frequently at industry conferences and corporate events, having just completed another term as co-chair of the 8th Annual Healthcare Unbound Conference here in lovely San Diego, California. Vince holds both an MBA and JD degrees from UCLA, as well as a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration from USC. And as a fellow Bruin, I might say I won't hold that against him. So, Vince, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, uh, Greg, thanks for having me on. look forward to having a good conversation with you. Absolutely, and, and I love the topic for today, payer-enabled accountable care. How, how appropriate, given where we stand in this rollout of accountable care organizations and this continuing conversation around accountable care, primary care medical homes, etc. So I thought just on the outset, before kicking it over to you, uh, I'd make reference to a recent article that I found on Becker's Hospital Review titled, The Quiet Takeover Insurers Buying Physicians in Hospitals. And I'll just make two references here. One is that this idea that there's a land grab underway uh, over primary care physicians by uh, some of the major health plans, actually most, the four of the five uh, top health insurers with one conspicuous absence holding back. So, Vince, let me kick it over to you. Tell us about accountable care and payer-enabled accountability accountable care specifically. What, what do you mean by that? Well, let me try to set the tone for the, for the discussion. In, in the 25 years that uh, you and I have been in healthcare, more than 25 years, that I have never seen a time of more uncertainty. And, and I think that came across last week in the Healthcare Unbound conference. I, I heard all of the speakers qualifying their comments, not as, as projections or fortune telling that is you know their best read of what's going on so i want to introduce a, a highfalutin uh, 
technical MBA type of term to, to set the tone for what I think we're doing here, Greg. The, the term is uh, tea leaf reading. And to uh, put a little bit of meat to that, I'm going I'm to put you on the spot and ask you a question. And it, uh, I, 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 there's actually a point to this, and you know, play along with me here. So uh, Professor Clay Christensen of Harvard Business School actually uh, did a survey of the answer to the question that I'm about to ask you. And I want to ask you and encourage the readers to think about what would be your answer to the question. The the question is, what percentage of early stage companies that are successful are successful with the business model with which they started? Let let me say it again just to make sure that you're clear. What of, of companies that become successful, what percentage are successful with the business model with which they started? First up, I'll answer that. <laughs> I'm saying, well, we're off script. <laughs> I love I love the question. No, the great question. I would say I'll, I'll get back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. I would say um you know the 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 knee jerk reaction is the eighty twenty rule that eighty percent are, but I'm going to say uh, probably erring on on the the lower side of that, maybe somewhere between twenty and forty. So so Christensen, the empirical answer is that seven percent of the companies that are successful are successful with the business model with which they started. There you go. And so you know what. That actually has profound implications. When, when I work with clients, I usually use that as a way to set the tone for the kind of discussions we're going to have. And it really sets you off on a very different mindset of strategy uh, as opposed to what we had in a industrialized world versus what we've got in a digital world. And in the, in the older model of, a, of an industrialized uh, manufacturing world, strategy in it, uh, your, your strategic question is your shell oil, and you want to build a $30 billion oil refinery. You do a whole lot of research up front and uh, questions about, uh, you know, is there oil there and what's the economy like and is the country going to be taken over by terrorists? And then you make a go, no-go decision, and then, you know, you get into execution mode, and you don't question that execution mode for a long time. And in, in a digital world, it's in, in exactly the opposite, and that's that's really the point that I want to start with today. Of and, and my context of what we're really doing here is tea leaf reading. You know, businesses are no longer defined by major capital investments. They're, they're defined by business models, and they're defined by lines of computer code, all of which can be changed uh, rapidly and instantly. And so the the question from the entrepreneur's standpoint is not to spend a lot of time in planning mode and then go execute, but to come up with the best vision that you've got given the amount of information that you've got and to uh, constantly iterate because the chances are, back to Christensen's model, you know, there's a 93% chance that whatever you came up with for your first business model isn't right. And if you've got that mindset, you know, you're always scanning the horizon. So, so play with me here. You know, I do have a vision of what is happening in healthcare, and it is my best tea leaf reading, and I certainly invite others to disagree with me and offer their own perspectives. 
but uh, I think it's a defensible and a pro- uh, provocative point of view, and you know, so we want to share it with the uh, with the audience. Now, now to get on to the, the topic at hand here. So, payer-enabled and accountable care. Accountable care. I, I am detecting a major, major shift in the marketplace, a, a, a pendulum shift, where uh, even three, six months ago, we saw, I think, uh, providers, and by providers I mean hospitals and doctors, uh, getting increasingly enthusiastic about the idea of developing accountable care organizations and uh, overcoming initial differences that they may have had and and that uh, you know, they seem to be embracing this idea. And then came along the Medicare Shared Savings ACO rule, which has gotten a tremendous amount of exposure, and in the 1,200 comments that CMS received, an incredible amount of pushback. So uh, what has happened in the marketplace in the last three months, my read is, is that from the provider side, ACOs have become dead in the water. That, that the momentum that was there uh, has uh, totally uh, gone away. Uh, and by dead in the water, though, I also want to say it's not sunk, and that until we see the final rule sometime in August or September, you know, that, that there is no momentum. Uh, it may be able to be uh, re-energized by CMS, but I, I think CMS is certainly not in a very desirable position as they are right now, with most of the provider world having thrown up their arms and said, you know, we think that what you're proposing in this Medicare shared savings rule is is too bureaucratic, it's too much risk, it's not enough upside, uh, there's too many quality measures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's part of the pendulum shift. Well, and let, let me part- let. Let me interject, not to throw you off, but uh, yeah, that narr- that narrative around, you know, dead. I love the clarification. It's 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 not sunk. It's just dead in the water. But then again, the narrative that's coming out is, and, and t- there's a uh, an article today. Uh, CMS director says doctors want ACOs, and that's Jonathan Blum, who's associate director of CMS. So again, it's a tea leaf <laughs> interpretation proposition. But uh, I think the weight of some of the negative commentary certainly favors your interpretation. I, I read that article, and if you read what he says, that uh, what he says is, yeah, there were 1,200 comments, and a lot of physician groups actually gave very constructive commentary. Uh, I, I would label what he said as a very, you know, optimistic read of the comments, and would dis- would disagree with the conclusion, but, but again, you're right. That's where we're back to, to tea leaf reading here, and, and there's so much uncertainty in the marketplace, that's really the best we can do. Got so, it. Uh, so on to the other half of the pendulum shift, whereas, uh, and, and I'd like to come back to this, but let me capsulize it. You know, Two or three years ago, payers, in my read, were initially very skeptical of the whole idea of accountable care organizations. And and it's worth coming back to the details, but just accept the conclusion for now. And yet they tried a number of experiments. And that what what I'm detecting from from payers, from from what the CEOs are saying, from their press releases, from from the major, you know, hundred, multi-hundred million dollar acquisitions that they're making, that payers are understanding that accountable care uh, 
And let me make a distinction here. Accountable care is broader than an accountable care organization. It's the idea that someone in the healthcare system needs to be responsible for the overall flow of patients. And ACOs may be one way of achieving accountable care. ACOs might work, they might not. But what I am sensing is that the market is also reaching a consensus that accountable care is a good goal, that fee-for-service is not a good way to pay for health care. It encourages volume over value, and that very simplistically what I'm seeing is payers having this light bulb go off on their head, over their head, recognizing that the notion of accountable care is now totally consistent with their new business models that they have to pursue in light of health care reform. And what I'm labeling here is that uh, payers have gone from uh, experimenting with ACOs as a part of their strategy to now embracing accountable care as a central part of their strategy. So that's really the thesis of payer-enabled accountable care, and it will look quite different than what providers might think. It could include ACOs as organizations, but it's really more about the payers might even use the term more value-based uh, purchasing as opposed to accountable care. To me, there's a lot of overlap in those concepts, but the term accountable care comes more from the provider world. So I, I think it's wiser to use the term enabled in which payers ultimately have to be helping providers and collaborating with them, and it's wiser to use the term accountable care because that's a term that the provider community is recognizing. Uh, follow me? We we on the same page so far? Yeah, Absolutely. So do you want to kind of maybe break it down a little bit of what's actually happening in the marketplace uh, as part of maybe changing the perceptions of accountable gear from a payer point of view? Yeah. So let, let's go back to where I wanted to fill in a few details here, and let's rewind the clock two or three years and re-describe the world from the, from the payer point of view. Uh, the, the payers uh, have major health plans, and uh, by payers I'm speaking broadly uh, certainly around the national health plans, but all the regional health plans as well. And even more broadly, uh, employers who are self-insured uh, have that risk. So uh, I'm using the term pretty broadly here. But two years ago, health plans were right in the target, the center of the bullseye of health care reform. And, and in fact, it was being uh, labeled as insurance reform by many. And the question of whether health plans would even survive health care reform uh, under a single-payer uh, model, which you know, ultimately didn't get very far. But politically, uh, the risk was a single-payer model would really pretty much do away with the need for commercial health plans and the you know, multi-billion dollars of investment that is, that is in them in the, the private com- or the public companies right now. So when when ACOs came along around 2005, 2006, I I saw, in retrospect, three main objections that the payers had to ACOs. And uh, some of these are still valid, but I think that they're changing. 
the, the first of these is that they saw the ACO as a potential competition. And their mindset was, hey, you know, uh, if these doctors and hospitals get together and form new organizations to deliver coordinated care, they could go directly to the employer or the government and basically uh, disintermediate or cut out of the loop uh, the, the national or the regional health plan. Uh, I think that is uh, a legitimate uh, concern, and it's understandable. Uh, but I also don't see uh, certainly a lot of uh, evidence for uh, the level of accountable care organizations being anywhere ready or able to do that. So that's, that's point number one. The, uh, the second point where health plans had problems with accountable care organizations is that the notion of accountable care organizations uh, really uh, deflates the, the need for uh, the central skills of the health plan in managing a risk. And the worst case scenario is, and I, I suspect they're still thinking this, you know, hey, if accountable care organizations come along and we begin to shift risk to care providers, and ultimately we could shift all the risk to care providers uh, in more of a capitated model of accountable care, then what is there left for the health plan to do? Uh, we uh, are uh, at risk of becoming glorified electronic claims pushers, and uh, that we've made our living off of uh, considering our ability to manage risk, and now we're going to push this uh, onto the of providers, where where I think this ch is changing is that the payers are getting a, a much more nuanced view of risk and different levels of risk, and I think that as we uh, get a better understanding of how this can evolve in the marketplace, that there are many capabilities that traditionally have been done by payers, uh, disease management, population health. Uh, predictive modeling, data acquisition, analytics, uh, those types of activities are, in my opinion, unlikely to be shifted to the ACO, and it's very likely the health plans are going to be able to uh, continue to do them and, and arguably do them far better than, than an accountable care organization could. And that... Uh, the, the ball is also really under the control of the health plans and how much risk they want to shift to the providers. So what, what I think we will see is lots of nuanced experiments around uh, bundling of payments and episodic payments with the idea, idea being that the payers will maintain the types of risk that they are really able to manage best, which is actuarial risk, or, you know, for example, the incidence of particular conditions within a, within a large population, and that the payers will try to shift to providers the type of risk that providers are able to manage best, which is what is the quality of care that you provide for uh, that patient in front of you and your entire base of populations, and not put the providers at risk for actuarial risk or a, a question of, you know, we have uh, three times the cancer rate this year. 
know, that's not a risk that the providers have any ability to control, so the payers are likely to, to keep that. The, uh, the third issue is around uh, the payers having seen ACOs as competition to Medicare Advantage plans. And uh, many of the large uh, payers have uh, Medicare Advantage uh, plans in the marketplace. Overall, there are about 25% of the uh, Medicare population is enrolled in, in already at-risk uh, capitated plans. The capitation is, is to the health plan, not to the provider under Medicare Advantage. And uh, Medicare Advantage was revamped drastically. Uh, maybe we want to go down that road later on. But uh, I think that what we are seeing today is that the payers are increasingly recognizing that the Medicare Advantage plan can actually be the base of their setting up further accountable care, and uh, that in a, in a given regional marketplace, they've got a Medicare Advantage plan that effectively has a lot of infrastructure. It's got a, a contracting network with doctors. It's got uh, fee schedules set up. And the trick, then, is to turn that base of existing accountable care business uh, over into uh, the commercial market as well as the existing Medicare Advantage market. And under that view, that uh, payers have a leg up if they look at uh, accountable care as expanding Medicare Advantage as opposed to creating totally new organizations. So those are the three reasons where, in my sense, the, the mindset of payers has uh, shifted and shifted pretty dramatically. So uh, let me pause, Greg, and give you a chance to, to uh, you know, push back, ask questions, uh, take it wherever you want to take it. Well, I, I think that's a very instructive uh, breakdown. The, the thoughts that <clears throat> occurred to me uh, listening to you was, um, you know, um, it, 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 it may even be more complex than that because um, when you look at payers and and uh, try and define them as as you just did, you know, there's no necessarily uniformity out there, particularly as it relates to risk management, which then drives what a payer actually looks like and how they operate. Because for the most part, the major health plans. To the extent they're writing business, for the most part, they're doing it under administrative services only agreements where they don't have risk. So I'm wondering is is their commitment to risk management real, and and how does that then sort of play in in terms of what they're doing on the disease management front or any commitment towards wellness and prevention? Uh, if we're if we're to believe what J.D. Kleinke has published, which is now a little a little older than maybe two or three years, the average retention of a member or, or an, of a covered life in a carrier or a health plan is somewhere between two and three years. So why actively mine uh, for things to do when you ha only own that uh, liability for less than three years? Why not kick the can down the road to the to, to the next one because of all the churning that occurs in health insurance? So th that's one of the thoughts that occurred to me. <laughs> uh, your point is really valid, and I think it's it's worth examining what's happened to that under health care reform. And, the, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to acknowledge here that you know, health plans are not particularly loved by anybody. And I I don't want to be 
uh, judgmental about that, but I also need to be realistic in recognizing that. I, I work with health plans, and in, uh, in my experience, the people that I work with uh, truly are uh, you know, 95% people who uh, really want to do good. That's why they're in healthcare, and that there is a potential to do good, and that the fundamental flaw in the system has been around you know, economic incentives being pointed the wrong way. So, you know, I acknowledge health plans are in a big hole, and part of their strategy of payer-enabled accountable care needs to be to recognize that they're in a big hole uh, with patients, with with doctors, with uh, hospitals, and to begin to dig their way out. So uh, I don't want to minimize that. But, uh, but let's talk about the shift in economic incentives under health care reform uh, and what that does to your point of, uh, which, which is still very valid, of the, the churn is uh, 20% a year, and under 20% a year turnover, the economic incentive for health plans has been not to invest a lot in uh, disease management and wellness, because when that payoff is likely to occur is after that person is no longer a member of your health plan. And from from having spent a lot of time in the disease management world, that was always a real conflict in the disease management model that arose in the 1990s and the early 2000s. You know, disease management as a business model was really defined around uh, return on investment, and the health plans uh, were looking at conditions, uh, heart failure, uh, COPD, um, diabetes was a question mark, and they wanted return on investment, preferably within a year, and certainly no longer than two years, for the exact reason that that you mentioned. So, uh, the uh, at that time also the CFO uh, and the chief medical officer really had a conflict around uh, accepting more risk, and the the. the the challenge was if you got really good as a health plan at doing disease management, what you would do is you would attract more uh, sick and uh, chronic patients to your uh, health plan and uh, your population base and your risk pool would, would head south. Uh, that was a real problem. So, uh, so we need to examine how these issues are being addressed in health care reform. Uh, the major change is that uh, under health care reform, uh, uh, payers have to change their business model, which uh, I'll label in the past has been around risk selection, and I, that's a fairly neutral term. But you know, if you are a, a patient advocate, you would describe risk selection as uh, the health plan uh, doesn't accept people with pre-existing conditions, and when somebody gets sick they cut them off or they raise their premiums so much that they can't afford the the uh, the plan anymore and you know to me that's a lot of the reason where health plans have been painted as uh, evil unethical bad whatever word you want to use it's around this policy of risk selection some would call that it policy. cherry picking <laughs> so, cherry sorry to interrupt yeah. yeah some would call it cherry picking sorry to interrupt well it's a perfect term yeah and so basically under health care reform uh, that that's no longer allowed and health plans have to insure all comers and in turn that they have to they will get risk adjusted uh, payments uh, and so uh, 
you are now uh, incentivized, uh, I would say, to, uh, depending upon the risk adjustment methodology, which is a big footnote, but, but uh, you know, that's another discussion. You know, the problem with the old system was uh, that uh, you don't want to get sick patients because it messes up your risk pool. Uh, under healthcare reform, you've got to take all comers, and you will be getting risk-adjusted payments, which should uh, offset the risk, the extra risk that you're going to get by accepting people with pre-existing conditions or people who actually get sick. So that ought to provide some incentive for doing uh, care management, uh, chronic disease management, population health, and uh, is a major, major change in the way that the world of health plans have been run. I, I look at it as really a gift to the health plan world that uh, that they need to run with, and uh, and I think they are. Uh, but again, recognizing they're in a major hole in terms of how they're perceived by the rest of the world. Well, let me ask you this, and uh, you've offered an acronym, which I absolutely love, with this Payer-Enabled Accountable Care, which is P-E-A-C, and that brings to mind PEACE, and I thought maybe to perfect the acronym, we might call it Payer-Enabled Accountable Care Enterprise, and that, that, that's, that's, so there we have PEACE. And it's almost like there's a there, there's a sort of a hidden message there that you know like uh, Rodney King says can't we all get along, and and that goes to the whole collaboration question because healthcare is complex no one can do it alone, and it seems like some of what you're describing outside the regulatory purview that this accountable care thing let's not talk about ACOs let's not talk about ACA or or the notice of proposed rule that's on the table right now let's just talk about what makes sense in healthcare and this is what makes sense integration coordination case management you know patient centric organizational delivery pods and on and on that is occurring irrespective of what's happening in this debate around accountable care organizations so do you see this collaboration taking place irrespective of what's going on in Washington? Well, you, you define really, I think, the first central question, the first fork in the road that you come to. And do you think that uh, the term that's being used, and I, I think it's pretty descriptive, is the shift from volume to value, from volume-based payment to value-based payment and delivery of services, is a really good way to describe the shift that people are trying to accomplish in healthcare. Uh, some people, and I think rationally, you could believe that, uh, like it did in the 90s, that uh, this is going to go away like a headache. You know, we're, we're going to you know, wait till it uh, dies down, and then we'll go back to doing things the way that we've always done them. Uh, in my view, again, this is tea leaf reading, that uh, I think that there is enough momentum in the marketplace and enough of a recognition. You know, my label would be is that the market is uh, accepting and driving the notion that we need to have a volume, a rather a value-based healthcare payment and delivery system. And how we get there is still under, uh, you know, under discussion. But that we want to go in that direction, in my mind, has become. Uh, accepted and is irreversible and uh, 
uh, is going to happen. And uh, we, you need to pause and say, you know, do you, does your thinking encompass that type of assumption? Because if, if you're not with me on that, uh, then much of what follows from that you know, may not make sense to you. Uh, it sounds like we're on the same page in reading the, the shift that's occurring. And, and I think we, uh, you know, I know you well enough, Greg, to know I think that you and I see that as a positive direction. And most people would see it as a positive direction, certainly in their role as patients, because no one wants uncoordinated care. But, but economically, that, that that puts uh, and a lot of challenge on uh, doctors and in particular hospitals who have been used to a volume-based payment system and who, uh, you know, in their heart of hearts, what do they really want here? They may well want to preserve the, you know, the status quo. Right, and I I want to mention that you know there are models that work out there, and if it were not for by the way there are models which are essentially prototypes for uh, this regulatory proposal that's on the table, as well as real world examples that work in their markets. Group Health, Kaiser you know, Geisinger, and I would venture to say that if they did not do something that's known as shadow price, in other words, they'd sort of, you know, regardless of their cost basis in their health plan operations, if they would sort of meet the market in terms of premium. So even though they're more efficient at delivering and organizing care and therefore are less costly, and, and I'm talking here about primarily uh, HMOs, where they're really globally managing risk. Uh, if they did not shadow price, in other words, raise their premiums to what's otherwise prevailing in the market, and what would prevail in the market is this sort of mishmash of PPO and individual and uh, ASO and full risk and on and on, they would probably be somewhere between 20 to 30 percent below where current aggregate healthcare costs are right now. If we were, if that was the mainstream model in healthcare, but but we're not there. So let let me go back to the other point: is given this on this horizon of risk retention, if in fact employers retain health plans and churn them, you know, 20 percent uh, bleed each year. So there's a maybe two to three year risk retention from a, of a health plan. Then the, then the numbers I've seen on the employer, which would be the next rung out on risk retention, is somewhere between six and seven years average employee tenure. In other words, how long they'd retain health risk for that uh, employee before he or she moved on. Uh, the one who's really <laughs> with skin in the game from end to end, from zero to end, is the patient, right? So, I mean, right. w- where's that in all of this? Well, well so... Uh I, let's let's take a look at what happens to your assumption of continuing churn in uh, in in health plan membership, and that might or might not be true. And there's again pivot points where we just don't know that uh, the health insurance exchange legislation. There was another no- notice of proposed rulemaking issued last week under health insurance exchanges. Uh, that the projections are around 26 million people who have been previously uninsured are now going to be entering the insurance market. And 
those people would enter under, uh, think of a health insurance exchange as a online broker, a portal where you would go to do comparison shopping among different health plans. And part of the legislation is that uh, the health plans have to give you uh, apples to apples types of uh, comparisons among the different plans, which, which I think is uh, you know, something that makes a lot of sense. So effectively what you're doing here is creating a retail market for, for health insurance. Uh, and if you've got 26 million people under exchanges, to me that changes the presumption. It begins to change this presumption that you're going to have two to three-year churn in the marketplace. It's no longer uh, an entirely employer-based marketplace. And uh, the, the health plans, again, their economic incentives start shifting and they have to go through this process of, uh, gee, I've just acquired this patient through a one-to-one -one sale over my website. Uh, how long are they going to be a member? And uh, we don't have you know, information on this yet, but I, I would you know, intuitively think the answer is going to be a lot longer than three years. I mean, think of how often you change your life insurance or your automobile insurance, and you know, the term may be 10, 20 years. At that point, you have totally different incentives for the health plan to start thinking about investing in a much longer uh, perspective. The, the other unknown here, which I think is really worth watching, is what happens to employer-based insurance under health care reform. And if you've been following the market uh, carefully, you've seen some uh, really prestigious uh, companies come out with uh, totally uh, opposite conclusions here. Uh, McKinsey did a report, and it was really um, in the press and got a lot of controversy. Uh, they came back with uh, the conclusion that under health reform, that employer-based insurance would erode tremendously. If that is right, then again, you have the same potential phenomenon where uh, these people who are no longer insured by the, their employer are going to be purchasing health insurance from a exchange, a portal, like an Amazon.com for insurance. And in turn, uh, they're no longer necessarily going to be churning every two or three years. So uh, this is where uh, you know economics, to me, follow the money. Uh, it's a totally different incentive model. And under the perspective that the health plan is going to be retaining the patient for a much longer period than a three-year employment period, uh, now they start having to have incentives for longer-term wellness, uh, disease management, population health, all the things that you and I you know, know are intuitively the right thing to do but haven't had the right return on investment in the past. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I, I'd love to see benchmarks. Uh, one I've picked up uh, is that, for instance, Kaiser here in California, their average member retention is 16 years. You know, so I don't know. Yeah, so I, I don't if you sort of roll up all of WellPoint and roll up all of Anthem and roll up, you know, all of Cigna and find out what their retention is based on ASO versus fully insured, you know, what those numbers would look like. But I think the general notion that it's a kick-the-can mentality, probably there's some real merit there. <laughs> I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a frivolous uh, notion. Uh, well, you mean in the current system? In the current system, and, and yeah, like well, like you 
said, these provisions, health insurance exchanges, eliminating cherry picking, the, you know, the individual mandate, obviously, when you start saying, uh, um, you know, for insurance to work, any actuary will tell you, you know, absent, to, you know, you all pay or you play or you pay. There's no alternative to that. So the, without the individual mandate in this health reform, the, the math just doesn't work. So, um well, let, let me offer another perspective because I, I really want to look at the health plans here in a different light and encourage people to you know, rethink this idea of what the health plan has been for the last 10 years, you know, the prototype of the bottle, John Q, where, you know, the health plan is evil. Uh, you know, this idea of risk selection in insurance is something that if it's a person involved, we understand that it's not good public policy to allow uh, the health plan to uh, not insure somebody because they're sick or because they get sick. And you know, the law has not reflected that. Uh, let's take it and take it out of the context of health care and think about the reaction you have in the sense of uh, property insurance. You've got beachfront property on, or someone's got beachfront property on in Malibu or uh, the, uh, the Louisiana coast, and uh, it's subject to slide into the ocean or it's subject to the risk of uh, being able to be uh, washed away by a hurricane. And, uh, you know, I think we intuitively react very differently when we hear that a insurance company chooses not to insure somebody who's got beachfront property in Malibu. Uh, you know, so it's the same economic uh, factor at play. It's both, uh, it's, it's the insurance company effectively being economically rational and saying, you know, the risk of our insuring that high-risk property is something we choose not to do. You know, we accept that in the sense of property insurance, and we revolt at it in the terms of health plan insurance, but it's really the same principle. Did I shock you there, Greg? No, uh, you uh, just caught me muted. Um, I can't can't disagree with it. Um, um, so, do you want to spend a few minutes talking, uh, going back to this um, idea of who's doing what out there in terms of you know, some of the s stories that are in the news recently? For instance, uh, Highmark and UPMC. Uh, well point let's and talk care about more. that as an example yeah because yeah. we've been kind of uh, you know at a, a very strategic level but let's talk about Highmark uh, UPMC and uh, let me give a snapshot of, of the you know situation there and you know ask you to fill in the, the perspective uh, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Pennsylvania uh, announced uh, a couple of weeks ago that they were going to buy West Penn Allegheny Health System which is a, uh, uh, I think it's a number of hospitals in the Pittsburgh area and, and physician groups. Uh, the price tag was $475 million. Uh, the dynamics in the marketplace there are uh, UPMC, which is uh, University of Pennsylvania Medical Center Health System, which is both uh, about, I think they've got around 20 hospitals in their system, and a health plan with a million and a half people. Uh, already has about 50% of the share of the market in the, Pennsylvania, in the Pittsburgh area. And if 
the West Penn Allegheny Health System had gone bankrupt, as it was about to do, uh, that would have given UPMC a, an extremely strong uh, bargaining position and uh, really would have had a Highmark on a barrel, over a barrel, and being able to raise prices. So what Highmark did there is, is that they went in and the health plan buys the hospital and the health system, and, uh, and now the health plan is in the role of uh, you know, effectively competing against UPMC, and uh, they also insure a lot of people for, uh, you know, at U- uh, out of that system, you know, puts them in a very conflicted position. So uh, what would you add to that, Greg? Let's make sure we got the facts straight first. Uh, I I wouldn't add anything. I, I think it's one it, – there's an interesting article out today, Highmark lawsuit against UPMC alleges false advertising. So in this move towards integration and market rationality, if you will, along the lines of general health reform principles, it's a rocky road, and whether there's collaboration – or not, uh, you're going to get these kinds of little hiccups along the way. So, so, uh, so if we agree on characterizing the situation, I think then the question really is: is uh, do you take this as a sign of health plans going out and buying more hospital systems? To, to me, that was the major question that came out of this. And uh, is that a, you know, a fair characterization? Also, is that you know one of your questions? Yes, that that is one of the more on point. Sorry, I drifted there a minute, but uh, yeah, more on well, point. It it doesn't make sense. Uh, and you know, should for instance, uh, essentially arm's length relationship payers who contract and build networks, should they own and operate the networks? And clearly, uh, that's uh, a business decision that many are saying. You know what? Uh, we this is not nece- we're not in the- we're a health plan. We manage actuarial risk and underwrite and do all that stuff. We don't own and operate physician offices or hospital systems per se. But you know what? We got to get our hands around this, and that's one way to do it. So, boom, let's go. And I think that's what they concluded in in the in Pennsylvania. My answer to the question of whether this should be taken as a signal of health plans going out and starting to buy hospitals is I I think no. And my characterization is that there were unique circumstances in the Pennsylvania market and back full circle to really where you started that the land grab is going to be over primary care physicians uh, that – what we will see, again, this is tea leaf reading, is uh, health plans trying to align themselves in various ways through uh, joint ventures, through investment in doctor ventures, through uh, uh, employment of physicians, all kinds of different ways. But it's really the primary care physician that is the target here. And if I were Highmark, I would characterize the situation in Pennsylvania as uh, I've got to buy this hospital because in the Pittsburgh market, if you uh, if West Penn Allegheny goes belly up, there's no competition and we're going to get 20, 30, 40 percent price increases. And so uh, my characterization is it was an action of last resort and not something that should be taken as a signal that. Uh, health plans are going to buy hospitals, but again, back to your point, 
you know, the, the pivot here, the land grab, is really around who's going to line up with the primary care physicians. Uh, and what, uh, what we've been seeing is a lot of hospitals trying to do that. And now what we are beginning to see is the uh, entry of health plans who have been sitting on the sidelines, and now they're going to enter that game. Yes, and you do remind me that all health care is local, and it's hard to generalize and say this set of dynamics will equally apply in Nashville or Phoenix or Chicago, for that matter. But uh, clearly it's a tapestry uh, playing out across the country under some general principles here. But I, I think we have some collective wisdom here from, from what took place in the 80s and 90s and 2000s as to what what makes sense uh, as to how these partnerships or or um or um acquisitions uh, could play out but uh, it's going to be a very interesting uh 24 to 36 months here as we watch uh how things play out i i'm curious about the norton um humana relationship uh, in louisville um, I'm also very interested in what uh, WellPoint's doing out here in California by acquiring uh, CareMore, which is, uh, I believe, if my uh, CareMore is a, a multi-specialty group practice that uh, started small and grew into essentially a virtual operation out here in what's called the Inland Empire. And uh, WellPoint uh, picking them up is, is is one more time health plans stepping into the business of owning and operating medical practices, and uh, there has not been a particularly good track record there. So we'll see if this time it's going to be any different. My advice to the health plans would be buy them and then let them run themselves uh, because the the efforts to manage physicians is the herding cats scenario, and you you give physicians the right target and the right information, and uh, they they will... uh, find ways to to optimize rather than maximize the amount of care. Uh, and what I take away from your examples, Greg, yes, healthcare is very regional. Uh, it's not surprising that uh, in its hometown that, um, uh, that the payer and the providers of Humana actually have a good relationship. Uh, and while we're painting, uh, you know, broad brushes here of payers having generally bad relationships, uh, there are certainly going to be uh, pockets where uh, they have better relationships and have more of a foundation to start doing business deals. And also, as a generalization, I think that uh, when you compare the national health plans, who who tend to have a very centralized uh, management perspective, versus the more uh, regional plans, uh, who tend to look at their regional markets uh, uh, much more. Uh, Sensitively, you know, and have a much better relationship with doctors. You know, we're going to see different dynamics playing out in the nationals versus the regionals. So, you know, punchline here is exactly what you said: that uh, to paint a picture is going to be a tapestry. It's going to be very different in different regional marketplaces. Uh, in some places, uh, payers, or rather, uh, physicians and hospitals, have bonded very well. And, uh, and and they will continue to be successful. Uh, in other cases, we, we haven't even started. And uh, we're seeing, you know, the payers be aggressive in trying to align themselves with uh, the doctor groups in, in various different ways. So there you have it, uh, AHIP members. Uh, good advice from 
Vince Caritas, where you feel compelled to buy him, let him run themselves. The good question there is, can that happen? <laughs> can you acquire something and let them basically operate with some um, some uh, arm's length or some 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 firewall, if you will, between you as a health plan or insurer and the uh, delivery system? So, Vince, I want to thank you. Believe it or not, we've actually almost consumed an entire hour on this conversation. Do you do you have any parting thoughts you, you want to leave? Uh, us with before we close it out? Well, I'll end where I started. This is tea leaf reading. It's a very uncertain time and that uh, I welcome uh, folks. Please uh, give me a call. Come to the blog and comment and, uh, you know, it's a constantly changing perspective and I hope to have uh, stimulated some uh, useful ideas and, you know, very much appreciate the chance to have been a guest on your show, Greg. Thanks. Oh, you're most welcome, Vince. I'm delighted you could join me. And how would they contact you direct? Well, uh, my my email is Vince K V I N C E K at B H T uh, info I N F O dot com. And of course, the eCareManagementBlog dot com as well. And Vince will be a periodic contributor at uh, at ACLWatch dot com as well. So. I want to thank my guest, uh, super informed Vince Caritas, for his time today on ACO Watch and Midweek Review. We do this weekly on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And next week, I have uh, a surprise guest lined up. We're going to talk more broadly about health policy from one of the more um, insightful health policy wonks in the Twitter sphere and in the blogosphere. So please join us then. And one more time, I want to thank my guest, Vince Caritas for his time today and hope you'll stay involved in these conversations on ACO Watch and Midweek Review. So we'll close out as we begin with the insights from Chris Martin of Coldplay. Enjoy. Take care all. Bye next week. See you next week. Bye-bye.
Thanks. Take care. Thank you.